Is anyone aware that growing hurts? It does, doesn't it? Growing hurts. It's an unfortunate reality for many of us. You know, and some kids, when they go through growth phases, actually get physical growing pains in their limbs. Many times my children have complained of that. I don't remember that as a kid, but that's okay. It must just be different for each person. But as we get older, growing doesn't really become any easier, does it? Now, when we first learn a new skill, it can be so painful. Have you ever been in a car with a learner driver who's really just trying to work out the clutch? That is painful, amen? But one thing I found painful last year was I had to learn how to, because I wanted a new website for our church, right? And so I wanted to make it nice and fancy. So I... No one was yelling out saying, yeah, I'm a web designer, so I learned how to do that. And so I updated our website last year and it's, it was painful because I spent the first four hours just trying to work out how to use the interface, you know, and I'm digital native, like I've been brought up with computers and even I struggled and it was quite painful. But then I got the hang of it and then I worked it out and, and we got there. If you haven't been on our website, go have a look. It's lovely, I think, you know. Uh, and uh, if it, it's not up to date because it's so painful for me to, get, to think of going back and doing it. I haven't kept it very current. I will do better. Don't you worry. But when we, when, we, when we learn new things, it can sometimes hurt even if it's just our brain hurting. A few years ago, I wanted to build some timber shelves out of some leftover pine and, and whatever else that we had laying around from when we built our new house in Frankston. And so I met, went to my mate who's a builder and because I'd had all these, these pieces of timber ready to go, I had all the, you know, I just wanted big shells, high things, deep, whatever. And I had all the bits and pieces ready to go. And so I went to a mate who's a builder and I borrowed his nail gun. And uh, nail guns are great because you just tap and ka-chunk and the nail's right there. You know, there's no like drilling, screwing, you know, none of that. It's just ka-chunk, it's done. They're brilliant. And so, as I got this nail, he said, oh, don't shoot yourself in the finger or anything. I said, don't worry, I won't. So, here I am putting this framing together and I've got these, a side one and an upright one and they're putting together. But this, this would have been outside a bit, so it's a bit, bit warped. So, I was holding it in place, right? And so, I'm holding this. It was this way. So, timber coming this way, holding it up and I'm shooting this way. So, I'm like, yeah, that, that's great. Ka-chunk. Well, the nail hit a knot in the wood and the nail just went boom, straight down into my fingers. So I've got a few little scars there. And whenever you're working with your hands and you cut them or hurt them or whatever, what happens with the blood? It goes everywhere because there's so much blood in your fingers because you're working with them, right? And so there's drips all over our garage because that's why I was doing this. And, uh, you know, it was really... And so I just got some tape and just, you know, finished off one thing. Well... You should have seen his look on his face when I rocked up that night to give him back his nail gun with my fingers all bandaged. I goes, you didn't, did you? And I went, well, sort of. Because <laughs> what had happened was it bounced off the bone of this knuckle into the bone of the next knuckle. So it was really just skin and a bit of bone bruising. Luckily, nothing too bad. There was no, like, through the thing. Um, later that year, he was with his framing gun, framing up a floor because he was a framer and he got his foot in the way of his gun and went straight through his foot. So just sawed off the timber and went to hospital. 
Um, so I'm not the only one. Brad, have you hit, hit, shot yourself with a nargun? No. Oh, there's still things you can do. Growing can be painful. Learning new skills can be difficult and can be painful experiences for us in many ways. But so can our relationships as they grow with other people. They can sometimes be painful too. And even our relationship as that grows with God, that also can be painful at times as we grow spiritually. And for those of us who are married, well, that relationship, growing in that relationship is just delightful, isn't it? (laughs) We all grow and growing often hurts. Because one way that God often helps us grow is by sending challenging circumstances our way. Challenges that he knows will grow us, but sometimes can be so painful to go through. But when we're out on the other side and we look back, and when we can see how we've grown, I don't think we'd ever willingly choose to go through that pain again, but I wouldn't trade what I've learnt for nothing. You know, like what you learn after you go through it, you wouldn't trade that for not having to go through the pain, I don't think. When life gets hard, so often God is trying to teach us things, trying to help us grow. And today as we look at Luke chapter 4, we're going to see how God takes Jesus into incredibly challenging circumstances and we're going to see him overcoming trials And we're going to see how God helps us to grow into who he wants us to be as bearers of hope. So let me pray for us before we open the scriptures. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today from your word. Lord, as we look at the trials and temptations that Jesus went through in order to bring us hope, Lord, I pray that that would reach into our lives and into our hearts and that, Lord, you'd speak to us through your word today. Amen. So you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So let's just slow down a bit and look at what's happening. The Spirit led Jesus to face Satan. God's Holy Spirit, a member of the Trinity, took another member of the Trinity into the desert to be tempted and to face trials by Satan for 40 days. For 40 days he faced the constant barrage of the devil tempting him into sin. 40 days, an interesting number. Well, here Jesus is identifying with the journey of the nation of Israel for 40 years one of the desert and reminiscent of the 40-day fast completed by Moses and Elijah. You know, he's connecting himself once again with, with the heritage of the nation of Israel. And it's here we see where Jesus had eaten nothing, where his human body was screaming out to him for sustenance that Satan makes his big play. And recorded for us are the culmination of temptations that have been a constant barrage upon Jesus for these 40 days. And Luke records for us the three 
most pivotal temptations that happen during this period of time. He doesn't give us the exact moment within that 40 days in which these occurred, but this is, these are the, the, the most important ones. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So Satan begins this temptation by saying, if you are the Son of God. He implies a challenge for Jesus to demonstrate his divine power. If you are, prove it. Satan is asking in essence, why should the very Son of God have to suffer in the wilderness in this way? Now Satan knows very much who Jesus is. Yet the Spirit leads Jesus into this time of trial and temptation and we're 40 days in, Jesus is hungry and Satan is saying, turn this stone into bread. Now he would have been craving food. Yesterday I did a funeral up in Harrietville for a lovely old lady. We, we left uh, Wangaratta about quarter to 11 and at about 4 o'clock was when we were sort of on our way home and you hadn't had a chance for lunch, and oh, I was hungry. And that was only like, I missed lunch. Imagine what it is after 40 days. Maybe I should miss lunch more often. But anyway, Satan here is telling Jesus to do something that his body was craving, crying out for him to do, to make himself a sandwich, to make a rock into bread, to use his power to satisfy his own desires is what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do rather than trusting in God to supply all that he needed during that temptation. But Jesus answers him with the scriptures and he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 that man does not live on bread alone. And the rest of that verse says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus is saying here is that satisfying our need for food is not as important as trusting and obeying God, which is the very thing that Satan was tempting him to forego. In verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So I have one question. Who gave Satan that authority? He claims that all authority and glory is his and that he can give it to anyone he wants. And I guess in, though in one sense Satan is the ruler of this world, as we read in John 12:31 and 1 John 5:19. I don't think these claims, though, should be accepted as fully true. Satan is a liar and the father of lies, as we read in John 8:44. And in the final analysis, all authority belongs to God. And spoiler alert, when Jesus conquers death, having risen from the grave, and just before he ascends into heaven and gives the great commission, he starts that commission with these words. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the truth. That is the reality. 
Satan does not have that power. But he still tries to tempt Jesus into breaking the first commandment. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here Jesus quotes scripture to Satan. And so Deuteronomy 6.13 is what is quoting and 1 Samuel 7.3. They say, Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. 1 Samuel 7.3 So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and of the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Satan brings temptation. Jesus brings truth. And the truth he brings is the very word of God. Satan's not finished yet though. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus has been quoting scripture as his defence against Satan. And this time, Satan demonstrates one thing. He knows the Bible well too. Because he quotes scripture back to Jesus to try and defeat him, to tempt him into sin. And this time, the devil quotes Psalm 91 11 to 12, but he quotes them incorrectly. He takes it out of context. For the psalmist did not mean that a person should attempt to force God to protect him. How often does Satan use scripture twisted to twist us to his will in this world? I see it so often. You know, people misrepresenting the words of Jesus because they've taken him out of context to put their political view across. Jesus answered, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he replies, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, all of Jesus' answers come from God's word and specifically from Deuteronomy which was a book that was highly regarded in Jesus' time. And by quoting scripture back to Satan, Jesus demonstrates the centrality of God's word in defeating Satan's attacks and temptations. So when we feel like we're under a constant barrage of temptation from Satan, we have tools at our disposal to defeat him, just as Christ did. It's the very word of God. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan makes his diabolical attempt to subvert God's plan for human redemption by trying to cause Jesus to fall into sin and disobedience and in doing so, trying to make him disqualify himself as the sinless saviour. Yet Jesus knows the truth. Jesus remains faithful in the midst of temptation and he proves that he is worthy. I love Revelation song. Worthy is the Lamb. And when you read the passages in Revelation, 
Who is worthy? Only one was found. That's Jesus Christ. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. So then we see that the devil departs Jesus. Although Satan, he remains active in opposing Jesus' ministry right throughout, Jesus doesn't actually experience this sort of confrontation again until his crucifixion. Having experienced divine confirmation and anointing by the Spirit at his baptism and now through his victory over the devil in the wilderness, Jesus returns to Nazareth where he grew up to begin his ministry. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Love that gospel teleportation. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So Luke wants us to know how much he believes that Jesus is God. And so we see phrases like everyone praised him and he was glorified by all, showing that Jesus was recognised by many as worthy to be exalted and praised. And he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, verse 16, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. We see here Jesus' faithful attendance in the synagogue and it's quite amazing to see how central the synagogue was to the early Jewish communities. See, many synagogues have been discovered from the Roman and Byzantine eras, eras, periods of time, as well as throughout the Roman world. From Galilee and Judea, first century synagogues have been unearthed in heaps and heaps of different places. And what we've discovered is true about all of them pretty much is that they consisted of typically a large room with a few others around them and often there were uh, bench seating around the sides. They've also found uh, particular seats. One was called the seat of Moses, like a decorative, almost throne-like looking thing. Interesting. And often there was this thing called the Torah Ark. So this was basically a box or a room in some places which is the place where they would store the Old Testament scrolls. There's also some written evidence that everyone gathered on, a, on the Sabbath for a service at the synagogue which would involve singing, set prayer readings, the reading of scripture and an interpretive homily or sermon on that reading and the priestly blessing. And the leadership of the synagogue fell to both the elders of the congregation and to the ruler of the synagogue. And so for the Jewish people, uh, the synagogue was a central hub of life and was where they gathered together, was where they met regularly, where they fellowshiped together, much like what we do here at church today on a Sunday. It was a central part of their social fabric. And so it was here in the local synagogue where Jesus attended faithfully, regularly, habitually, that we find Jesus stand up and read. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus chooses to read Isaiah 61, 1-2 and 58, verse 6. And from this we know that Jesus is aware of his anointing and claims to be the messianic servant of the Lord who is speaking in this passage from Isaiah 61. He's saying, this is me. So what he's saying is that his mission involves proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, which in the Old Testament meant release from those enslaved in exile, but more is included here since liberty elsewhere in Luke Acts refers to forgiveness of sins as well. Jesus has come to give sight to the blind, indicating both the physically blind and the spiritually blind. He's here to give liberty for those who are oppressed. And so in Jesus' ministry, that includes healing the sick, casting out demons, forgiving sins, and ethical teachings that promote moral uprightness and the right way of doing things and justice. See, when the book of Isaiah talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour, it's actually referring to the year of Jubilee. But also in the view of this entire passage here, Jesus carries out the role of prophet by proclaiming the good news. He proclaims that he also carries out the role of deliverer and saviour because he is the one who saves his people. That is good news indeed, right? The Lord's favour is upon us in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they said, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So this was a a long and roundabout way of reminding the people of Nazareth that when Israel rejects God's prophets, God sends them elsewhere, even to Gentiles. And at this recounting of what God has done in the past in times of need where he's reached out to people outside of the nation of Israel, the crowd becomes angry. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They attempt to kill Jesus. And this reveals that the shadow of the cross was cast early in Jesus' ministry. These people are filled with rage 
And like other stoning incidents in the New Testament, which more typically involve pelting someone with rocks, this action also is a mob activity. The mob was angry and tried to kill Jesus. You know, there's some early rabbinic teachings in the Mishnah that list that throwing someone down a cliff is actually the proper way to stone them. And that's what they do here. But as they're under Roman rule, only government officials could carry out a death penalty, yet the rabbis considered stoning a legitimate death penalty, especially for those whose sins include adultery, blasphemy, idolatry, witchcraft, persistent rebelling against parents, or Sabbath-breaking. Here the mob is incited to violence against Jesus, someone who they had known for years. But where does their anger come from? Jesus had just spoke to them and had just told them that he was the Messiah that the prophet spoke of. Now wouldn't this have been cause for great celebration? Wouldn't this moment have been something that they'd been eagerly awaiting for centuries? But you know what? Instead of celebrating the Messiah, they got offended. Instead of recognising who Jesus was, they got offended. Instead of humbling themselves before God, they got offended. This crowd This mob of people chose to get offended rather than realise the truth standing right in front of them. How easily are we offended too? These people rejected Jesus. He knew they would. You see, what Jesus was pointing out was that the nation of Israel had rejected God And that the new plan to bring salvation to the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was going to go out beyond the nation of Israel and to the whole world. And this is why they get offended. That their Messiah was going to save people who were not their people as well. You see, they'd forgotten the covenant that God had made with Abraham. You see, God promised to make a great nation out of Abraham. We know that, right? Father Abraham had many sons. But the purpose of making Abraham a great nation was so that that nation of God's own people would be blessed to be a blessing so that through God's nation of Israel, the whole world would be blessed. But they failed at completing this themselves. But God's promise remained true. And so the Messiah is the fulfilment of that promise to be a blessing to the whole world. Jesus came to save us all. Yet they got offended and they tried to hold Jesus off a cliff and to kill him. I love what happens next though. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. See, Luke doesn't tell us how Jesus does this. I'm annoyed. Right? I want more details, you know, but I can imagine one way. You know, just as Jesus walked into that upper room, which was sealed and locked, I just reckon he just walked right through the mob of people trying to kill him. You've probably seen movies with holograms where people write 
walk right through the image of that person or whatever. You know, and if I was making a movie of this scene, I'd use that cinematic technique so that I just could walk straight through. A bit, you know, almost like a ghost just walking through all the people. Like, just, just, he just walked through the crowd. Obviously, some miraculous deliverance by the power of the Holy Spirit had occurred given the circumstances because it was not yet time for Jesus to die. And talk about God sending Jesus into challenging circumstances. I mean, seriously, he just spent 40 days enduring the temptations and trials that the devil had just kept hammering him with. Then he goes to the synagogue in his hometown, something that he would do every week, somewhere where he would have seen as a safe place, as a familiar place. He reads the scriptures, he speaks the truth, The people get offended, form into a mob and then try to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. Now, I don't know when the last time that happened to you. I don't know when someone tried to throw you off a cliff. But what I do know is that all of us face challenging circumstances in our lives that are painful, that hurt and that force us to grow as we endure those circumstances. God sent Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan. He was led by the Spirit into the desert. God sent Jesus to proclaim the truth in the synagogue, to preach the gospel, at which he was rejected and they tried to kill him. A pattern that we see repeated many times in Acts. God allows us to be in challenging circumstances because he has a plan and a purpose for us in the midst of all of our mess. We might not recognise it at the time, but it might be those very circumstances that give us the ability to minister to people with the hope of the gospel who are going through that exact same thing. God might bring us to people through those challenging circumstances who need us, who need to hear a message of hope, the hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who need to hear from someone who is in it with them or someone who's been through it and is stronger on the other side. Someone who's stronger, who's wiser and who has an increased understanding because God has brought them through. You know, my first couple of ministry appointment experiences were not that easy. Now, there are amazing blessings in each of them. But the earnings were pretty rough. The last one was downright brutal. And it took me a few years to get over the hurt and, and betrayal and, and everything that was wrapped up in that whole experience. But I can clearly see how much I learned when I look back now. How much I grew through those experiences that I believe are certainly paying dividends for us in ministry here. I feel like God has prepared me well for this time, for this place, and that he will grow us all together so that we can be effective together in ministering the hope of the gospel to the northeast by making disciples. And I can guarantee you that there will be moments of hurt, moments of offence, times where we might struggle through some issues, but I know that God is faithful to his promises that he has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And so in those moments, 
those moments where we might struggle, those moments where there might be some conflict, the moments where we might be hurt even, they are opportunities for us to grow together, to become more effective in our ministry of the gospel because we have grown, because we are stronger together. And one great way to grow is to be involved in small groups. In two weeks' time, we have our small group sign-up on Sunday. And on that day, each of one of us, we're going to be encouraged to sign up to a small group, you know, to put aside some time to focus on our growth as disciples of Christ. We'll also be commissioning our small group coordinator on that day as well. Now, these small groups will be taking various different shapes, sizes, looks, makeup, forms. Any other analogies? No? Okay. You know, some might be really strong Bible study groups. Others might be completely social groups and there'll be ones in the middle as well. Each group will have three key positions that will fill for each group. One is the group leader, one is the host and one is the pastoral carer. Together these three roles work as a team to oversee the group and each group when it forms will actually form under a covenant agreement and that is basically what happens in group stays in group. We love, we care for each other and that means that we're going to get deep. We're going to talk about our lives in ways that we might not otherwise. That's not for public consumption, right? So it's going to be within a covenant relationship. We all, as we join this group, agree to this covenant that we're going to care for each other in many ways. Now, the first role, though, is the host. That's what, what's needed. And that, that, the role of the host really is to provide a place to meet, be it your home or somebody else's or whatever, but you're the sort of the host and to arrange the practical needs of the group. You know, make up a supper roster or provide supper yourself or something, make sure the kettle's on, make sure there's enough seats, whatever. You know, it's sort of host. We, we understand what a host is. The pastoral carer is someone in the group who specifically takes an interest in the well-being of each person in the group and might take charge of maybe arranging meals if someone in the group is sick or making sure that everyone feels loved and welcomed and, and, and really is, I guess, a championing, champion of prayer for that group. And the group leader is someone who takes care of the content of the group meetings. So they might lead a Bible study or a devotional thought or arrange for a DVD to play that day or delegate between the group who might lead next week or even bring a board game or that night or just arranges the content for the group, whatever works for the group. The first two roles sort of are, are pretty important to fill um, of the host and leader and then when the group meets and forms together, if there isn't already an identified pastoral carer, then that will be identified then. I know that Kelly and I will be hosting, leading a fortnightly small group in our home of an evening. That will be a, a mix of a bit of teaching and fellowship. And I know that there's other groups going to be forming too. So we really want to ask you to give it some thought and prayerful consideration over the coming two weeks as to how you might be involved in a group. And if you, however, know that, yes, I definitely want to be, be in a group, I'd love to host one, I'd love to lead one, I'd love to be a pastoral carer for a group, then come and see me or email me this week so we can be in touch. Otherwise, small group sign up Sunday, February 9th. Don't miss it. Because we want to commit to growing together in the gospel. 
to growing as disciples of Christ, even though it can hurt, even though it can be painful, even though it can be tough at times. So let's stand by each other as we all go through difficult circumstances and care for each other through those tough moments as well. You know, Jesus had to overcome trials and temptations prior to his ministry of hope. So let's not lose sight that these things are there. God allows them for us so that we can grow and we can learn and we can be shaped more into the people that God wants us to be to accomplish his plans and purposes in our lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it seems silly sometimes to our brains to thank you for sending us into moments that cause us to grow and that can be painful. It sort of doesn't quite stack up, but when we look at the results of when we've gone through those circumstances and they've grown on the other side, Lord, we are, we are full of gratitude for the lessons that you've brought to us, for the way that you grow and shape us into the image of your Son more and more each day. The moments that where we can grow in the understanding and application of the gospel and the moments that those challenging circumstances bring us contact with people who might, we might not other meet, give us experience that we might not otherwise have that can then minister hope into other people's lives. Lord, we don't know what your purposes and plans are for all of the difficulties that we each are experiencing right now. But Lord Jesus, we know that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you hold us in your hands and that Lord Jesus, you bring us through these things stronger on the other side. Lord, you have determined ministry for us to be involved in. You've determined and, and planned in advance works for us to do good works. But Lord, we need to also grow in our spiritual understanding and our walk with you so that we can be attentive to your Spirit's guidance and calling. And so Lord, please help us to prayerfully consider how we're going to be involved in small groups this year so that can be done together in, in a community, in, in, a, in a group with love and care for each other and that we can sharpen each other and, and encourage each other and, Lord, get to know each other more deeply so that we can, again, be encouraged to fulfill the plans and purposes that you have for us. So, Lord, I pray that as we currently are experiencing difficult circumstances each one of us has something that's coming to mind right now i can guarantee has something there is lord 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 give us your perspective on that lord help us through that moment lord guide us through give us the words that need to be spoken give us give us the direction that is needed give us the vision to see clearly the path forward and Lord, may we look back on those moments of, of difficulty and, and, and growth that we're going through now with, with a, a, an understanding of, of the blessing that comes and a heart of gratitude for the lessons that we learn as we're shaped more into your image each day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.